Welcome to Appointed. Welcome, everybody. It's wonderful to to have folks back involved in, in our first episode of a two-part series uh, recognizing International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, which is October 17th. And I can't think of anybody better to join us as a guest um, as we start to have some of this discussion than Martha Jackman, who is an amazing lawyer, activist, professor, and specializes in the area of constitutional law, but I best know her from all the work she's done with women, with other marginalized groups. And I think the first time we met Martha uh, was not when we were doing some of the international work or some of the work with the uh, court challenges program on the areas of social and socioeconomic status and equality issues, but when you were acting um, as legal counsel when we were trying to get the right for prisoners to vote, but you have done so much more than that and uh, have written, have been recognized, have received countless awards um, and uh, really are I, the person I think of as the expert when it comes to this or the intersections of inequality, socioeconomic issues and thinking. So. Thanks. Thanks very are, much. It's really a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, you're yeah. The the privilege and pleasure is ours, believe me. And it's uh, so I want to you know, jump right into it. And as we're as we're talking about the eradication of poverty, uh, this is a, a day that's existed for some time. Canada dines out internationally on promoting international obligations and. Um, arguing that we are, you know, we take care of everybody. We're hearing about a recovery for all as we um, as we deal with the impact of the pandemic. But you and I both know there are millions of people in this country left behind. And so I'm curious what you think our uh, audience, our uh, community who listens to these podcasts should know as we as we talk about and recognize and think about the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty in Canada? Well, I guess the first thing that I would like to say, and I, I don't think it is a surprise to, to those who are have direct experience with, with poverty, is that the poverty is at its core a human rights violation. And it would really, I think, move things forward at so many levels in Canada if there were a better understanding and acceptance uh, in governments and within Canadian society generally that poverty is a human rights violation. It's not just a choice. It's not just a socioeconomic circumstance. It's not like some cases of suggested, you know, nature or God or bad individual decisions. Poverty is a human rights violation. I agree. And how do we get there? How do we move the government to recognize this? I'm, you know, I keep hearing about it. We're going to make sure that people can aspire to the middle class or can enjoy middle class status. How does that, how do you square those with human rights violations? Well, my, my view of things is probably distorted by the fact that I am, you know, a constitutional lawyer, and that is the lens that I look at these issues through. But I really strongly believe that, that a, a human rights framework is really an advantageous one in terms of both 
identifying the problem and working towards solutions because it does provide an accountability framework so that when we're designing programs or when Canadian governments, provincially, municipally, um, federally are doing nothing to tackle issues that we know are directly related to, to poverty and people's ability to live a decent life, understanding, you know, accepting and acknowledging and understanding that this is a matter of human rights and not just socioeconomic policy, I think is really advantageous. And, and I would draw the parallel to what, you know, what is happening at the moment in Canada finally are beginning to happen in terms of our broader public understanding around truth and reconciliation. It's, it's, it's the understanding that these, these are legal rights and they are legal obligations and that it's not just, we're not talking charity, we're not talking the goodwill of the state, uh, we're talking about a human rights accountability framework so that when a program like CERB was put in place, that it would be examined carefully to be sure that it really did promote systemic equality for the individuals and groups that are particularly at risk of poverty. And, and when the decision is being made now, are we going to continue these programs? Are we going to alter them? Are we going to repeal them? That decision should really, in my view, be made within a context of recognizing that this, this isn't optional. These are rights. And the question is, how can we ensure that people have access to their rights? And, you know, there have been some uh, hopeful moments. Uh, you and I both know Vince Calderhead and Claire and the folks who've worked on a decision that's just come down. There have been a few decisions in the criminal legal context that give, may give us some hope. Um, what do you see as the, the you know, if, if you were advising all the lawyers doing the work, what would you see as the way forward from where we are right now? Because, you know, I think some of it is we need to push the government. Uh, I'm now part of the government and I, you know, I, I still feel we need to push on uh, all of us within the government. Uh, but there's also ways that there are levers, whether it's the legal system or uh, public opinion, that we can be pushing this. And I'm, I'm curious as to what ideas you have around those areas. Well, I, I'm, I'm with you. I really want to congratulate Vince, uh, Vince Calderhead and Claire McNeil and, and everyone that worked with them, you know, in that, in that Emerald, Emerald Hall litigation, because what they encountered is you know, are the obstacles that really face any claimants and, and lawyers working in these cases. So it's there, I would say two things. And again, this is obviously through the lens, my own particular lens of somebody who's trying to make these changes through the legal system. First of all, governments fight these cases to the death. They take every opportunity they can. They start by trying to have the claim struck. They, tr they object to any, you know, intervener group. And you've experienced that yourself with EFRI, trying to get intervention to educate the course in these cases that, the, you know, government lawyers get instructions to oppose those interventions, to try and keep the issues as narrow as possible. You know, the ultimate goal is often to have the case struck before it's even heard which is what has happened, you know, for example, with the challenge to 
uh, Ontario and federal inaction on homelessness, where that case was struck. Uh, we, we have litigation going on right now around access by Nell Toussaint, an undocumented migrant to federal health benefits that the court recognized she needed to stay alive. We're, we're working on that and the, the government of Canada is bringing a motion to strike and the, and the lawyers have been directed to argue vigorously to try and you know, oppose any interventions. So the first thing is the stance of, the, of governments and attorneys general or the federal minister of justice to be instructing their lawyers to stop defending these cases in a way that's completely detached from what Canadian government's constitu domestic constitutional and international human rights obligations are. So there is no respect for either the letter, in my view, either the letter or certainly not the spirit of the human rights undertakings that we go abroad and brag about. And in fact, we brag about them in Canada, but once we're in court, it's as if they didn't exist. So that's the first thing. It's the way government governments approach these cases. but. I place a lot of blame at the, you know, at the foot of, of the judiciary and, and individual judges who are hearing these cases and are so, and uh, former uh, Supreme Court Justice Louise Alboa used the descriptive timid, you know, a lot of timidity, mm -hmm. just very, very um, sometimes out and out antagonistic, but certainly very unhappy many when they are confronted with these cases and really tend to be very open to the government's arguments that these aren't human rights claims, that they don't belong in the courts, you know, and in the town of Georgia, the homelessness case, that's really what the trial judge said is you, you people should be in the legislature lobbying. And what he didn't really grasp is that, of course, people living in poverty and anti-poverty activists are, are ardently engaging with, with, governments, legislators, politicians um, to try and change perceptions and to change laws and policies. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be allowed to go to court. Wealthy people aren't told, well, you're only allowed to lobby. You can't use the courts. I mean, wealthy people make excellent use of both you know, legislatures and the courts to advance their interests. And why should poor people be told over and over these are not legal issues. You don't belong in the courts. You're trying to use the courts for political purposes. Well, I mean, that we've understood from, from the 1920s that that is absolute law is politics. And, mm -hmm. you know, other groups are, are totally entitled and empowered to do it, but poor people are told you don't belong in court. So I think that needs to change. Absolutely. And it, it's also true when they come to government. I mean, the reality is for people who have or who are experienced economic deprivation, because that's how I think of it, uh, to then be told you go to the very fora, the courts and politics where, you know, priority is given to those with the most, those with resources, those with uh, power and privilege. And then you, you try and figure out how to duke it out there, I think is reprehensible, quite frankly. And it's, you know, it's part of the reason that in the Senate, I think many of us are interested in these issues, because we, uh, many of us take very seriously, I hope, all of us, but I certainly know many of us take very seriously our role to represent the interests of those who don't get don't get represented by elected officials because they're not the populist or popular 
causes. And so um, I agree with you. And I think, you know, the some of the move that's just happened, and maybe this is an opportunity to talk about what the case that Vince uh, Calderhead and Claire McNeil brought for the Emerald Hall case, which as you mentioned, well, you didn't mention, but it's one that in my previous life, I we were trying to intervene, we were booted out, thank goodness for Vincent Claire and others who kept it going. Um, what's unusual about this case, from your perspective? Well, I'd start with what's usual is that the the you know the the human rights activists and lawyers in this case including Vince and Claire but others had to fight for years and years and years to get this case heard and then suffered many many setbacks as they wended their way through you know the human rights system to the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal where finally the Court of Appeal recognized, and that's what's remarkable about the case, is that the Court of Appeal agreed with the argument that I think for your audience is absolutely obvious, that when we choose to warehouse people with severe cognitive and other disabilities in institutions and we deprive them or we we don't accord them the same the same opportunity to live fully in community, essentially to save money, because it's cheaper to put everybody together in an institution than to house them properly in community. The idea that that choice, that policy choice by the people we elect, you know, and often by us as taxpayers, that we simply don't want to spend money to ensure that people enjoy the same benefit of, of housing as as many of us do, that is systemic discrimination. And that is really the great victory in, in this case is to have the Court of Appeal acknowledge, you know, this is, we aren't just looking, it isn't just that people have bad attitudes towards people living in poverty and people with disabilities, you know, it's, we, we aren't prejudiced, we don't, you know, it isn't intentional. That, that's not the issue. Sometimes the discrimination is intentional. And, you know, we've all, we saw the coroner's report in the Joyce Echaquan case. And it is clear that in Canada, we have a lot of hate towards uh, disadvantaged groups, you know, Indigenous people, people living in poverty, people with disabilities. There is direct hate. There's direct discrimination, no question. But a lot of what is happening, it, it's systemic. It's, it's just the, the, impact of this network of ways of seeing the world of economic and social policies and choices that we make collectively that mean that Vince and Claire's clients spent their entire lives in institutions and never had the opportunity to live in their community. And again, the parallel directly to, to, to Jordan's principle and that mm -hmm. case, you know, we, we see this, it's, it's, we don't, we don't want to, to redistribute wealth to provide the resources necessary for everyone to have the same protection and benefit of the law in Canada. And I think, you know, these breakthrough decisions where the courts do listen to the claimants and actually look, and I've called it in some of my writing, reality checks, like our kids can do this for us. Like, mom, get real, look, open your eyes. That is what's required. And in this case, the Court of Appeal did do that, and the outcome, you know, as a result, really moves things forward. Mm -hmm. No, I agree, and thank you for raising um, the 
the other case that I was planning to raise with you, uh, well, there's many of them, but one that's still ongoing that you, to we, that you just alluded to, which is the First Nations Caring Society and the fact that the government is now umpteen times into uh, how many non-compliance orders and still, you know, even, even though the Prime Minister said during debates that they weren't fighting First Nations kids in court, they are. And um, what, what do you see, you know, what do you see going forward from here? And, you know, I know many of the people listening will be saying, okay, what can we be doing? And any ideas you have about what the, uh, the, the people who are listening to this, who are wanting to take action can do beyond um, what they're already doing. Many of them are writing to those of us in the government. Many of them are expressing on social media what needs to be done. What else do you think we could be doing to try and move, um, move ourselves forward in a positive way? Well, again, I think I'm probably preaching to the converted with many of the people that are listening to, to your to your podcasts. But we sometimes we, especially you know, I'm a an, a very comfortable middle class woman living you know in a home that I own. That there's a disconnect in a way between. So we say they, 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 the government, the government, the government. Even very well meaning people in Canada often we you know how why are they still fighting this? You know they're fighting at this because when we when we step out of our our personas of you know well-intentioned good people into our persona of taxpayer, suddenly, you know we don't want to pay tax raising taxes in Canada or even touching the tax system is political poison for any political party. You know the Liberals when they were first uh, elected to replace the Harper government just dabbled at the tiniest little edge and the pushback was so vicious so until i think we recognize that why why is the government refusing to settle and to pay it's because they see their primary role as um saving taxpayers money and that you know that's something that was drummed into us in pre, you know under previous political regimes in Canada. It's, it's basically neoliberalism, and I think that the first thing we have to recognize is that we need to be directing our elected officials to understand that we that we get like this is essentially there's redistribution that has to happen for the resources to be made available. We have to spend resources differently. You know, we we look at the the housing crisis, and you know, there's all kinds of government spending on housing. You know, mm-hmm. the the tax break if you sell your principal residence that's a very very expensive investment by Canadian governments, and they're foregoing tax revenue at a very very high level. Do we? You know, are we willing to give this up? so that these resources can be redistributed. So I think some of it is a bit of soul searching ourselves and then sending the signal to our elected you know, officials that we understand, we don't want them to keep saying, no, 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 we won't spend. Mm-hmm. We want them to respect rights and, and comply with these occasional positive orders from the courts because they're few and far between and settle these cases and respect the spirit of the constitution. And that in this case is really what's required. 
if the government continues to to fight this case, it's because it hasn't heard the message loudly and clearly enough from the Canadian public. Stop doing that. No, I, I agree. And thank you for that. And thank you again for all of the incredible you work, work you do every day, all the work educating our leaders of um, the future, including folks like Alex who are working with us and, and others. And what will you be doing on International Day for the Eradication of Poverty? Well, and this is where I, I feel really positive, Kim. I, I am so lucky. I am a teacher and I will be teaching. And I take so much, um, so much uh, comfort and optimism from my students because I find my students now, even compared to 10, 20, and especially 30 years ago, are so much more aware. They're so much better educated they really, they get it, you know, they really get it. And so I, I feel, I feel encouraged and I feel that there is change starting to happen that will really be hard to reverse. And it's because of a whole new generation of, of young, young people and activists who understand colonialism, they understand racism, and they understand that it's just, it's not right. And it's got to change. So I'll, I'll be teaching and and doing it with a lot of optimism. Excellent. And I want to thank you for that. And uh, thank you for continuing to also take on so much work pro bono every day, which uh, we didn't even talk about. So I'm going to encourage people to look in the notes uh, for some of the articles and the, the biographical information about the work that Professor Jackman has been doing for many, many years, even though she's incredibly young. And I look forward to continued discussion. Um, and, and stay tuned, everybody, for part two of this series, which we will also be putting out next week. Thanks very much. Thank you very much and take good care.